fun fact about BC is that those benefits typically only pop up when you start implementing those projects or you start designing and thinking it through. Most of the projects start with efficiency benefits, power converter savings, but then in every project that we did this far down the road, some of these remarkable benefits turn up and, and then you're very surprised about how things are being done today that you think like, why are we doing this so inefficiently sometimes, but that's just because industrial plants need to run and that's just the way it needs to be. That's what I like about this technology, that once you dive into the details and aspects of the applications, there's always an advantage around the corner. Welcome to the Tangible Computing Podcast. My name is Andrew Rutgers, co-host. And I'm Gareth Thomas. The Tangible Computing Podcast is about where computing meets the real world. From the fast and complex, like controlling an engine to imaging a patient or scheduling an airline. We want to trigger your curiosity by talking to the people behind the scenes of making the modern world happen, deepening your understanding of where computation plays a role in our everyday lives and motivating you to help engineer a better world. This episode of Tangible Computing is brought to you by ChargeSim. ChargeSim is helping accelerate the transition to electric vehicles by helping electric vehicle fleets find the right charging infrastructure for their needs, trading off parking arrangements, smart charging, and utility capacity to help find the most cost-effective solution. And now, let's find out how software drives the world. Today, we're talking with Gil van den Broek from Direct Energy Partners. Gil, to start off, can you tell us a fun fact about yourself? Yeah, sure, Andrew. First of all, thanks for having me. I started off with computing at a very young age. And actually, very few people know about me that actually I put my first website online when I was about nine years old. You, you should imagine back at that time, websites were still hosted. We were still having dial-up modems. So basically, nobody ever in the house could, could call while you're on the internet. So a half an hour time slot to publish my website. And I don't know how I ever ended up programming a website back then. I even don't know anymore how I managed to get it on online. I just still know that I called a lot of these help desks and very few people got a clue about what is this nine-year-old talking about. But essentially that was one of the first times I got in touch with software and, and the entire world of the internet, basically at a very young age. And it's still a remarkable today and I still don't know why well, I was doing in that space <laughs> that's part of my my childhood actually <laughs> and so this was a GeoCities site or what do you remember what you're using to, to host that or did you have to program it in HTML it, it was programmed in HTML in an application called Microsoft front page back then so uh, I think we're that talking uh, year year 2000 2001 so it was programmed in html so just static web pages what it was about i think i built websites about f-16 fighter jets about helicopters about everything that interested me at that point in time and i i don't think ever uh, anybody visited these websites were just out of personal <laughs> personal yeah 
um, skills that I want to, to get equated with. That's often the best way to learn something is to uh, dive in and do that. So exactly. uh, your company, uh, Direct Energy Partners, I understand you do software to help with planning DC grids. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So actually, Direct Energy Partners is a company that I, I co-founded now. Uh, it started off with two engineers, two like-minded people that have expertise on, on DC microgrids as such. Maybe to dive in a little bit more into the subject of DC microgrids themselves. So essentially, then we're in the space of, of decentralized energy production. So a quite hot topic, especially with the, the climate change trends and the entire energy transition that we're going through currently. And essentially, the topic of DC microgrids is based upon, let's say, three main pillars, three main facts that we, we see where the future is heading towards. And the first fact is essentially quite obvious that the future is electric. We're moving towards electric mobility. We're moving towards heat pumps for heating. We're moving in the past away from gas-based lighting towards electric. And essentially that's a trend that will continue over time and more and more and more. And the second trend is effectively that on the generation end, we're moving back to the early days of power systems where we got widespread small scale generators sitting all over the place in cities and where we gradually move towards centralized large scale power plants. And now with renewable energy generation, because it's modular in nature, because it are the same PV modules that are installed in large scale megawatt solar plants that are put onto rooftops. Essentially, we see that this generation also gets co-located more and more often with the loads that they need to supply. So then we're in a microgrid context, then we're in a context where essentially generation and loads are co-located. I've also seen if you look at the business case for solar, it makes a lot of sense when you still have a feed-in tariff, which a number of the governments here are now starting to turn back or dial back on. And if you produce energy to sell it to the grid, the business case isn't great because the distribution costs so much. But if you can produce energy and store it or use it yourself, the business case can actually be pretty good. And so that local generation and consumption of energy provides a much better value because you, you never have to go to the grid and never have to pay the, the distribution operator anything. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's a trend that we're seeing uh, generally, both in the U.S. where we're active and, and, and in Europe. Yes, yes, yes. And actually something that's that's somewhat less evident, uh, less obvious trend, I would say, that's number three on my list, that's essentially that the future is also power electronics based. It's very unfrequently recognized that essentially there are a lot of electronics in between the chain from where energy is being produced towards energy is being consumed. Uh, to give the audience somewhat of a feeling of what we're talking about, we're talking about these fancy laptop adapters we're carrying around. We're talking about solar inverters hanging in the garage. We're talking about uh, charging poles where uh, DC power conversion equipment is being built in. We're talking about vehicles where inverters are being building. So we have power electronics all over the place and it has become a commodity without even really recognizing that. So our, our power system, besides being electric and decentralized, is also completely 
uh, power electronics based nowadays. And, and that's where DC microgrids uh, get, get into the story effectively, because all these power converters that we're talking about, the majority of them have an intermediate DC stage. Your laptop adapter first rectifies the AC voltage it receives from the grid towards an intermediate voltage before converting it to the 19 volt or 20 volt that your laptop typically operates at. For USB, so, the same thing. So we're going we're going from the most of the grid right now is operating on alternating current, where 50 or 60 times a second it alternates the the polarity or the direction of the current, and that makes it really easy to use things like transformers because transformers only work when you have alternation. But most electronic devices use direct current where it's it's flat; it doesn't reverse polarity all the time, and so we need to do this conversion stage. And every time yep. we add one of these conversion stages, we, we lose some efficiency. So by converting DC microgrids, we can cut out some of these stages and reduce the overall losses and have an overall more efficient system. Yeah, yeah, that's a perfect summary, yes. We, we indeed cut out electronics in the, in the chain. Somehow you can put it like we're gonna build a power electronic system that we're anyway moving towards with the least amount of electronics involved. That's what we typically like in terms of reliability, cost and efficiency, yes. Can you explain a little bit better exactly what your company software does? Yeah, essentially the software tools that we currently developed, they originated from a need into a number of DC projects that we started doing in the past couple of years. So essentially the, the company started off with like providing like turnkey DC projects. So customers approached us and say, what is this DC technology it's about? We wanna use it in, for instance, an office building case where we have some solar rooftop photovoltaics, where we have battery storage installed, where we have EV charging installed. So we started taking on these projects but along the way, we figured out that in a lot of these, these projects, we, we need software in order to appropriately size all the equipment that's in the chain. And that's essentially what our software tools that we currently mostly use in-house are, are helping us with. They're basically helping us to become more productive. And, and now we're somewhat in a transition stage from a more project-based company towards a software-based company because we're now planning for releasing these tools wide open such that more and more people can start using these DC design tools to simulate, help you sizing all this DC infrastructure that we're talking about. Um, because the, the main problem you're, you're confronted with essentially when you're gonna start building a DC system is a lack of, of expertise. You should know like DC system has one big advantage, but at the same time a big drawback. And that is it can operate fully autonomously without a lot of effort. These systems, if the main power goes down, can continue operating, no problem. But the drawback of that is that you as a control engineer, protection engineer, you also need to make sure that in those operating conditions you at all all times need to make sure that your system is stable so that when a, a load starts up that the voltage dip doesn't become too pronounced if a fold occurs that not that only the fold is cleared for instance and not all the the entire system goes down so basically we need to collect all these expertise all these skills into one 
single system. And that's typically something you not find that often into the, the engineers that are out there. Um, and that's what this software is helping you with. So it's essentially delivering you a recipe on how you can uh, set up these systems to make them safe and stable. I find that's one of the, the big aspects of this transition to a more power, electro power electronics driven distribution is uh, the, the traditional older systems, the, the transformers, uh, if you're using sort of brushed motors uh, for alternators in cars, for instance, to create the 12 volt, uh, they are on the one hand, they can produce an awful lot of spikes and dips, but they can also tolerate a great deal in the way of spikes and dips and EMI, uh, simply because they're very, very kind of physical level. Whereas you get into the more power electronics based systems, they are much better behaved, they produce far fewer of these spikes and dips, but they're also much less tolerant to it. And a lot of the work ends up being the protection and the design to make sure that you put a power electronic system on with, for instance, a, a brushed motor that the power electronic system can tolerate the spikes and the, the disturbances that the brushed motor is putting in. So it, it's kind of a different world in dealing with some of those aspects. Yeah, exactly. And, and to add to that, so essentially we're building a system where we have power electronics on the source and power electronics on the load end. And there's a lot of control involved in there, control to stabilize voltages, to control currents, to control the, the, the rotational speed of motors, for instance. And essentially, all these controllers can start interacting. They do interact with each other. So there's a threat to, towards the stability of the overall system if you don't tune these controllers or you don't take into account that those do interact. So that's what this software helps you with. It's conducting like stability assessment of all these controllers operating together, connected to a, to a single DC bus in that case, yeah. So this is kind of like a CAD tool with some additional simulation, like an LT spice for a DC grid. Is that a, a fair comparison? It's a fair comparison, indeed. So one of the pillars from the software is indeed the integrated design environment that we're building. So that helps you indeed to do like the graphical layout, the schematic capturing uh, in that sense. It's not that advanced as the conventional CAD dry tools out there. That's also not the purpose of what we're doing. But that's essentially a kind of, I'd call it a whiteboard application helps you like outlining how this all the blocks fit together that helps you like do like design rule verification whether those blocks are compatible yes no so there's some logic behind it and then indeed one of the plugins to that ide is that simulation engine that that helps you with calculating voltage drops calculating voltage dynamics if the system starts up sh uh, shuts down so all the different operating scenarios so, so maybe he'll just for my understanding is so this sounds like a super interesting and useful but also essential phase uh, tool that people everyone in the world would need but before your company existed can you maybe walk me through what was the traditional way of doing things and what are the implications of doing this incorrectly the traditional way of doing it and, and i would argue that today that's still most mostly the industry practices it's a lot of trial and error based engineering simulation tools are out there they are being used but only to analyze very specific set of, of problems simulating entire systems and in power system typically 
gets only done once you run into issues. So it's not yet fully embedded according to my experience into the design processes today. The consequence, of course, of, of not taking into account computing and, and simulation into this, the design process is making errors that um, are very costly when they occur in the implementation or commissioning phase of the system. So what these simulation tools help you with is prevent making such errors and that saves costs down the line uh, and you can become way more proactive. So it's sometimes difficult to quantify because these costs, of course, occur once you're getting uh, to, to that stage. But everybody that has gone through implementing those systems knows that if you run into over voltage or under voltage issues, it takes a lot of time to identify what's essentially causing this error because it's a combination of components that you put together. So it's first of all, isolating and troubleshooting what is causing it. And sometimes it's just a combination of both. Um, and then secondly, resolving it proves to be costly as well, because you may need to replace hardware. You need to need to change certain configuration settings of devices, for instance, and that's sometimes not uh, being taken care of with the manufacturers, such that essentially you cannot configure these things. Identifying those issues up front is, is a cost saver. I think there's also a, a ceiling on the complexity of systems that you can do without simulation. If you have a probability of a commissioning issue goes up with every added component, then as you add more and more components, at some point it becomes too complex. And I think about uh, computer chips are a perfect example of that, that hypothetically you could try and design everything manually and, and draw it all out yourself. And in the late 70s, that, that was how you were doing VLSI. But to try and design a modern computer chip manually would be absolutely insane. And so the modern design the CAD packages, design verification simulation is absolutely necessary to be able to produce a system of the complexity that they're producing now. So I can see eventually that market also facing that kind of issue. To jump, jump into the, the software a little bit. So help me understand, what does the software package do? If I log in, what do I see? <laughs> so if you log into the software package, so you arrive at the integrated design environment, which is a white a sheet of paper you get in your screen where you can combine all the system components together. So I think it's very you're very familiar with these tools that are already out there. So it's very similar to that, with the difference that there is already some automation also already added into that uh, process. So very simple rule-based logic is in there such that you can basically draw those systems in, in minutes instead of hours that, that you typically use when using like PowerPoint or any SPG graphics editor that's out there. It's like the whole tool in SolidWorks where uh, I can just add a tapped hole for a bolt and it knows how to do all of the, ver the details about the thread and so forth. Whereas if I was to try to put that in manually, it would take a long time to draw it out in detail. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another way to compare it is like compare like SketchUp to AutoCAD or Revit design tools. You go to the second category where you're going to do the in-depth detailed engineering and you want to draw every cable come with in there to detect certain conflicts. Well, in a design phase, you typically want to take a somewhat more high level approach and just like outline the blocks, how does it all fit together, get some look and feel of the system. So somehow you can consider what we currently have built, like the, the SketchUp for 
PC microgrid drawings. And at the same time, besides being a drawing application, it's also an application where all the information is being organized because we also recognize that a lot of the information gets defragmented along the process. I think we are all comfortable with designing things and then you have an Excel sheet over there, you have a shared folder over there, you have version two, three, four over there, it gets emailed around, different documents all representing the same information. So there's not really a single source of truth anymore in the system. So at the same time, we're trying to tackle that as well. So all information, specs, are also integrated into that drawing engine because you anyway will need those at a later point in time where you're going to simulate when you're going to procure these parts, for instance. Mm -hmm. so to jump into the technical side of it, what's the tech stack that you're uh, building the tool on? The, the application framework itself that's based upon React essentially to do like the front-end development to depict it to the users. And that's essentially a skill that I, I learned in the past year. Uh, I think one and a half year ago, I didn't know anything about, about React application development. I knew JavaScript for sure from the past. And, and then I got in touch with React. It was like that nice component level programming style that you get in there where components have states. Actually, the resemblance with control engineering is very remarkable. So as an engineer, you like organized programming in a way where you can reuse certain components. So yeah, the front end is React-based. React I, I also use React and I found similar things that it, it works fairly well for front end uh, programming. It becomes very natural to work with. The link between like the components in React as well as with the hardware that you get in real life, that's yeah, essentially the structure that we use within React to build like the front is very much similar to the, the physical structure, the physical design of, of the system in real life. And then secondly, the, the backend infrastructure that just yeah, traditional databases featuring an API that then connects to the to the front end in, in that case. So, so that's the drawing part of things, the organization of information. And then we have a simulation tool on the other hand, and there we rely upon uh, Julia essentially as, as programming language where we have implemented all the dynamic equations of these systems. We use them build-in solvers of Julia to, to solve for all the differential equations in there. And those can become quite impressive sets of equations reminding of, of like secondary school as to remind like doing like x equals one y equals two or i mean or more complex systems of equations and now we're just providing our laptops with millions of, of equations and, and unknowns at the same time so building that entire set of equations together that's something that we accomplish in julia and and the, the large advantage of, of julia is essentially what the, the founders of, of the language also um, proclaim is like it programs as easy as Python, but it runs as fast as C. So it's not interpreted, it's pre-compiled before it's being executed. Of course, for larger computational issues like these ones, that becomes a necessity to run them in an efficient manner. Did you ever do uh, kind of comparisons between Python and uh, Julia head to head to examine the performance? Yeah, I run some tests and some some cases uh, there. So in terms of, of computational speed, we're really talking about 
Python taking you minutes to hours where Julia takes you the blink of an eye. That's the comparison. Okay, so it's quite a dramatic improvement. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Especially where you're also going to involve like optimization algorithms where you need to rerun the same set of uh, equations over and over again, then it really becomes uh, pivotal to to move towards such a, a programming language. Yeah. What, what do you think are some of the biggest software development challenges in what you're building? So the, the main software development challenge, essentially in, in this case, to get to this set of equations is trying to build your code into a modular fashion that is reusable. Very often a specific system is being simulated and a specific code has been written for that a particular purpose, which runs perfectly fine. The main challenge we had when writing this software is to make sure that it becomes modular and reusable, and also that it still remains generally applicable, that effectively you converge towards a solution to make sure that these solvers can deal with those issues. And so far, that worked out pretty well, but we also suffered quite some cases where it didn't converge and then you need to go and look under the hood to, to figure out where that issue is. And I think that's also one of the main challenges that are still ahead of us is to make sure that also the user will be able to resolve those issues down the line because having one parameter and, and an order of magnitude wrong can cause troubles in, in that case. So I think to make sure that the error handling and checking it is being done in an appropriate manner, such that you don't run into these issues. That will be one of the major things that we still need to cover. So you were talking about how you've got a front end, you've got a back end with databases, but then you've got a strong algorithmic part and you chose Julia as your language to do the modeling. I'm curious to know a little bit, how do you know when you get the right results? So there's you as the developer when you implement your algorithms, how do you know if this is correct? And then the second part of the question is, how do you enable your users to have that confidence that when they run that simulation, the numbers that they see, they can now put money behind that number. So I'm, I'm curious to know how you see that as a development challenge when making software. Yeah, in terms of validation, we have a very good equation and that's essentially conservation of energy in that case. That should hold at all times. The energy going into the system should somewhere go out and the balance should hold at every point in time. If you store energy inside a capacitor, if you release it back again, it needs to originate from something, from a battery, from solar, from the system itself. So a major step into the validation is to verify whether that energy balance holds at each point in time that we have simulated. So that provides you with a level of confidence that the results are, are valid. It's, of course, not uh, a complete confirmation. In very exceptional circumstances, it may still be in balance because one cancels out against the other. So but at least if there is an error, chances are very low that the energy balance would hold. So it's, it's a necessary condition to speak in mathematical terms to make sure that the, the equations are correctly solved. 
You talked a, a bit about the, the huge delta between, and I've seen it myself working with ChargeSim, between the, the kind of in-house tool that you build for your own use that you want to run a few times and the person who built it is the one driving it. But then there's a huge development effort between that and the more universal tool you can hand out to other people and it's got a user interface and they can use. And like you talked about needing to modularize parts and it's definitely an element I've, I've seen myself in the kind of going to a more professional software engineering approach as opposed to the electrical engineer who's picked up a bit of programming and has wrote, written a few scripts. And there's a, there's a big journey in between those two to make it into a, a really flexible and, and error-free and, and easy to use tool. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's also the challenge that we are now facing indeed. So how do we make sure indeed that in-house engineering tools can be used by third parties in that case? And, and we're still at the, at the beginning of that, that journey today. So our, our strategy here is that essentially we're now reaching out to some players that will start using them. I'd call them friendly partners that are still some, somewhat forgiving for, for these early bucks. And we're partnering up with them to make them uh, more efficient and more productive. So we talk to them about what are the issues that you're facing when designing those systems to get also some confirmation about our assumptions, right? Are these really the issues that you're facing or is this just some, some problem that you're not facing at all? And those early confirmations are quite positive. So we're now engaging with those partners so they will start using those tools themselves with us, observing from the sideline and being ready to jump in when, when necessary. And we're deliberately making that group of first users very limited because, of course, the, the level of support that they will need would still be high as compared to where we need to get. But that's the, the first step we're going to take to see how user-friendly this tool is to gain the main user feedback. And then we hope to scale this approach further and further down the road, requiring less and less of support from, from our end. Now let's hope that works. So what brought you from, we heard earlier about uh, publishing your first uh, HTML web page when you were nine to building a, a software as a service tool in React and Julia to, to help optimize DC and design a DC grid. So what were some of the steps in between? <laughs> good, good question. Thanks for that. So after starting off my, my software journey, I moved back into electrical engineering. That, that was, I think, in part because my father is a microelectronics engineer. My grandfather used to repair television and he worked in the army repairing radios and the telecommunication stuff. So it was, although quite surprised when, when they found out that I, I went for electrical engineering and because for them, 48 volt is high voltage and uh, a thousand amps are high currents, so, which is, of course, not the case for a power system engineer. but. At a certain point, I, I felt like this, this is the right way to go. So after graduating, I went into electrical engineering. Back then, it was the program that I followed at the university was energy engineering. That's the formal title of it. So I became attracted to that because it's, I think a lot of people will agree that that's the main issue that humankind is facing uh, today and also back then. So I wanted to contribute to, to solving that issue. So I started studying that matter more, more profoundly. 
studied also nuclear engineering because I wanted to, I mean, I'm, I'm still a technology enthusiast at the end of the day. And then when I needed to specialize, I had an opportunity to get back to towards that electrical engineering. So I can tell you that my, my family was also happy to hear about that because I started engineering essentially with the ambition to go move towards chemical engineering at first, but gradually along the way, it became energy, it became electrical engineering. And then after graduating, becoming an engineer, I got the, the opportunity to do a PhD about DC microgrids, such a topic that I got in touch with during my, my master thesis back then. That master thesis subject with the goal like, look, if I need to start studying DC distribution, I first need to review all the AC distribution parts as well. I think that's very valuable. Uh, a valuable experience to do that before I enter into the work field, uh, essentially. So it was out of that review <laughs> ambition and, and trying to dive deeper into the why and the what and how we ended up having power system as it is today that I started studying DC microgrids and that then continued the way towards a PhD where I got the, the opportunity as well to really build a DC system and one of the first commercial scale in, in Belgium after the ones that of course were there historically because DC in the early days was also one of the options uh, on, on the table. Um, and, and that was a very interesting journey because at the same time I could use programming skills to do like embedded programming to control power converters to use programming skills towards simulation, stability assessment, EMI type of issues, and as well as using just programming to write the thesis itself in LaTeX, for instance. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a program. That's a special programming language all by itself. <laughs> what do you think the the key applications for DC microgrids are? The key applications for DC microgrids are. First of all, EV charging, I think that's a no-brainer, especially moving towards higher power levels. They're cutting out that intermediate power conversion step, uh, pays a lot of dividends as such. And I think that's a, a general conclusion that I also arrived at throughout the years. DC makes particularly sense in applications where a lot of power needs to be handled by power electronics because the more power needs to be handled, the larger, the more bulky the power converters become, the more costly they become, the, the more losses that will occur in them. So the more the economics make sense. Uh, so and evidently EV charging or any type of charging application aircraft as well, their DC makes perfect sense um, because they're also mostly coupled with battery storage to alleviate the peak demands in, in those applications. So the current approach to doing that would be that you have a solar cell, which fundamentally puts out a DC power. You then run it through a peak power tracker, which is in effect a controlled DC to DC or DC to AC converter, convert it to AC voltage, which is what you're able to plug into the mains. Uh, then potentially if you have a battery system, you have another AC to DC converter to convert it to the battery, which is also DC. And then you would have to convert it back the other way when you discharge it and go from DC back to AC. And then finally at the EV charger going from AC to DC uh, to go to the fundamentally DC battery in the vehicle. And so this yeah. is many steps back and forth. 
and each one of them has unfortunately an efficiency hit. So you can't eliminate all of them because you have isolation needs between some of these components. Not all of them are operating on the same voltage, uh, or even if they could, there's optimality reasons why you don't want them to, but potentially with DC to DC converters, you can reduce some of those uh, efficiency losses and have uh, smaller and more efficient uh, systems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You completely captured that very correctly, Andrew. <laughs> There's no better way to, to frame it like, like that. Um, and, and we already see that trend happening today. We, we see in charging stations, they're combining all these things into a, a single charger. They're making connection towards neighboring chargers. The same happens in, in, in industrial plants where they're connecting uh, electronic drives to a common DC bus. So. Um, most of the drives nowadays, uh, they feature a variable speed drive to make sure that the motor operates at the right voltage and frequency because you need to carefully manage all those variables um, for the production plants of today. And in order to achieve that variable speed drive uh, capability, you need power electronics in between and you need a DC bus in between. So they start connecting all those things together uh, in industrial facilities, but at the same time in our homes, we see hybrid inverters popping up where you can connect the battery solar to the grid instead of having separate converters uh, for for each of them to do like the DC-AC, the AC-DC power conversion chain. Yeah. So you mentioned very briefly that you were you studied in Belgium and that's where your, your company is in Belgium. Is there any area geographically where this is more relevant than others? And maybe what is the role that governments can play to accelerate or de-accelerate your business? The reasons for DC differ from place to place. Um, as, as Andrew already pointed out, so the efficiency, cutting out power conversion uh, equipment in the chain, that plays a role, for instance, here in Europe, um, where, for instance, data centers are being operated that way to make sure that they run more efficient. Those are gigantic producers of heat. Those are 10 megawatt, 20 megawatt, 40 megawatt facilities nowadays. And um, those 40 megawatts are converted into heat by means of transistors. Um, on the other hand, we have applications in the United States, for instance, where efficiency is, of course, also a concern, but it's not the main driver for DC systems. Um, the main driver there is more the microgrid nature of these systems, the capability to run standalone independently from the grid. And that has to do, of course, with the legacy infrastructure that they have today. Um, they operate at lower voltages as compared to Europe. They have a, also a more widespread system. And of course, parts of, of the system are, are more subject to natural disasters, of course, uh, very unfortunately. But that's also a driver to make sure that you build small cell-based systems, microgrids in this case, instead of a large system where you have single point of failures, where entire regions can be in a blackout because of one event that threatens them all. The customer value proposition isn't necessarily just about needing slightly less solar cells or a slightly lower electricity bill. It's also that you're able to continue operating 24-7, uh, even if there is a grid power outage. 
And I'd even heard there were some cases last year in California where the utility didn't actually have a failure, but had to shut down power to some areas because the wind was so high. They were so worried about it triggering a wildfire that they yeah. would need to shut this off. And th this is California. Yeah, yeah. Those those preventive blackouts, as, as they were called, indeed, were basically need to prevent further wildfires from occurring because also the utility was liable for certain of, of these wildfires. So they just argued with the regulator and decided, okay, let's shut down part of those those systems to make sure that the fires don't occur, even causing blackouts. I think in, in Berkeley, I heard stories in San Francisco, so not even that remote area. So it had very major economic repercussions. And of course, those economic incentives built really the business case for DC systems in, in such a case, way more than efficiency as such, because electricity at the end of the day is still a very cheap commodity in our areas and in the US. Yeah, so if your industrial plant runs the risk of losing significant production capacity or having to stop flow processes and restart the factory, your uh, business costs can be substantially higher and therefore the, the backup becomes in incredibly valuable. Yeah, that's true. And another case where DC systems are more and more being considered is in those industrial plants because the variable speed drives I talked, uh, talked about before Essentially, when they ram down in speed, that energy needs to go somewhere. And very frequently, that energy just gets burned today in resistors because the other applications in there don't draw that much power to completely cover that energy that's being fed into your DC system. So having a DC bus in there basically enables you to eliminate that breaking resistor and those losses that occur in there and use it for a more valuable purpose than just causing heat. <laughs> it is possible to return energy from, for, for instance, regenerative braking on a drive back to the AC grid, but usually that requires technically and, regu and regulatory compliance that requires quite a few additional steps which the uh, drive manufacturer may want not want to do. So if it's on a DC grid, first off, the DC to DC converter will probably be, or the DC inverter will probably be smaller than a similarly sized AC to DC converter, but then also being able to add that regeneration, reducing the heat generated in the plant and uh, making better use of the energy overall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the fun fact about DC is that those benefits typically only pop up when you start implementing those projects or you start designing and thinking it through. Most of the projects start with efficiency benefits, power converter savings, but then in every project that we did this far down the road, some of these remarkable benefits turn up and, and then you're very surprised about how things are being done today that you think like, why are we doing this so inefficiently sometimes? But that's just because industrial plants need to run and that's just the way it needs to be that's what i like about this technology that once you dive into the details and aspects of the applications there's always an advantage around the corner and with none of the projects we encountered the opposite that essentially there's no advantage in, in there you just need to do it and figure it out
One of the challenges I always heard with DC systems was around things like fuses and switches. Because in an AC system, this is jumping into some very detailed technical part, but because the, the direction in effect of the current alternates 50, 60 times a second, if something breaks, like it does in a switch when the, the two contacts pull away from each other, or in a fuse when they, the, the metal burns and that separates the things out, the, the changing direction means that the arc uh, doesn't stay. Whereas with a DC system, because you don't have this reversing direction, the arc continues. And it usually means that DC fuses and DC switches are much bigger and much heavier than their AC equivalents. Is that a big challenge? Do you see uh, big solutions coming along to that? That's, that's definitely one of the, the drawbacks of, of DC. You have a continuous current, so it's more difficult to interrupt and break that current. That's a fact for sure. The main evolution we see there in terms of the technology is the introduction of solid state circuit breaker technology. We're also going to use the same power semiconductor devices that we use into inverters and battery chargers into the circuit breakers themselves. And that provides a huge advantage in terms of no longer using air as the separator. You're using semiconductor materials, so you're more gradually creating an, an isolation there between both poles. I'm not saying that those solid state protective devices are safe uh, to work on, so it still needs a, a mechanical switch before and after it, but for clearing the fault device, these, these, these devices are superior in terms of speed and in terms of arc-free fault current interruption. And also, as you mentioned, reducing the EMI, like we touched on earlier, that because everything's solid state, you're not doing these very mechanical things that introduce these sudden shocks and big spikes that reduces the problems that everything else on the network has to deal with. So you, you potentially yeah. have a, it's a much softer and more reasonable environment. Though, as, as you also point out, for the final safety, there is something about, and even, even very large high power switches will even have little glass windows that you can actually see that the copper pieces are no longer touching each other. And you train people to look at that before they start putting yeah. their hands on anything. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I, I won't trust the semiconductor myself to say it's off, it's not, not powered, so you can safely touch it. But yeah, let's use just air as a separation medium, but not to interrupt the current itself like we used so, in the past. So you use the semiconductor to shut off the, the current flow, reduce, and then when you do finally open the switch and create the air gap that you can see and inspect, then there's no current flowing through it, and so there's none of these arcing issues anyway. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. So what are you planning to learn next? What, what's your next big challenge or, or thing you want to find out more about? Well, something completely different from the, the computing and simulation space. Another passion of me, as I'd, I'd call it the hobby, is reading about economics. And I have some of, of the books on the shelf now on, on like modern monetary theory, like how money works and how it gets transferred and it's also a very dynamic type of system so essentially i'm planning to start reading those books and, and get some some feeling about what what this is uh, so policy and economics is, is is another passion that i'd love to learn more about so i hope to get some some life lessons out of these books too <laughs> 
I, I it was a few years ago uh, now read uh, Thomas Piketty uh, Capital, which is a yeah, 700 page book by a French economist it is quite interesting about thinking about interest rates and inflation and how that ends up creating the concentration of, of money and uh, interacting with uh, Gini coefficients. So yeah. have you read that? I, I have the book. I have read parts of it, but not the, all the 700 pages. I, I, I will also say I did not get through it in one sitting or in fact, very quickly. It, it was definitely one for small doses that you come back to occasionally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but what I also like about, about that book of, of Piketty is effectively he, he analyzed a tremendous amount of historic data to, to show like also the effects of inequality, because that's also yeah. some something that's close to my heart, because I also would, would like to make sure we live in a more uh, equitable society in the, in the future. And you also see that um, part of the money just doesn't end up in, this, in the places where it needs to be or just doesn't create additional welfare. So it's very interesting to read about those dynamics. Uh, and one of yeah. the, the book recommendations I, I can make to you, if you like about inequality or the book Joseph Stiglitz, the Nobel Prize winner, uh, I think two or three books about, about inequality and also the financial crisis of 40 years ago. So yeah, those are very interesting things because I think in part it's because in economics, they don't need to deal with the laws of physics. <laughs> the laws of yeah. economics are, are very much determined by how we design the system and how we shape the support and incentive structures in there. While we as engineers are constrained with the laws of physics at the end of the day. So it's interesting to see how, how both worlds relate. Yeah, there's a measure of the marketing and the sales pitch can sort of reshape how things operate or the policies can reshape how things operate. But in the engineering world, the electrons don't care what you think they were supposed to do. They're going to do exactly what they're going to do. There's nothing you can do to change that. You can encourage them to do something else and you know the rules of how to do that, but they're not going somewhere completely different. Yeah. So, how can people reach out to you and what sort of people or what sort of things are you looking for? People can just reach out to me through the regular social media. I'm quite active on, on LinkedIn. You can also visit our website, directenergypartners.com, where you find contact details. So all questions are welcome. Also about VC technology in general, or if you find a very interesting VC application, we're also always in, in favor of taking on new new challenges. So definitely reach out. And then secondly, we're also looking for enthusiasts that, that share the same passion in terms of software development, in terms of that mindset of let's try to change the world, <laughs> or at least a little bit. So all people that would like to join this initiative are also very much welcome to reach out to us. Excellent. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you. This is a great place to stop our conversation today. I wanted to thank you for listening to Tangible Computing. While we have your attention, we really want this podcast to trigger your curiosity and motivate you to engineer a better world. So let us know if you have any ideas for future topics or speakers or how to make this podcast better. Send an email to tangible at tangiblecomputing.com.